in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These are the famous words that begin the Bible, a collection of manuscripts that tell the story of a loving God who creates life and faithfully reaches out to humanity, offering that life and relationship for eternity. It's a story rich in hope, forgiveness, and radical love that invites its readers to embody the same. But many people don't see the Bible that way, and they have good reason. There are plenty of passages, even entire books in the Bible that are weird, controversial, or frankly offensive to readers in today's context. It doesn't help that we as Christians are often too prideful or fearful to ask any of the hard questions asked about this book, and when others try to, we shut them down, try to keep them quiet. Well, I'm tired of that, and hopefully you are too. If the Bible is what it says it is, if the Bible is what us Christians believe it to be, then we should ask as many questions about it as we possibly can, especially the difficult ones. We'll start with one I've had on my mind for a very long time, one that will already sound quite familiar. In the beginning. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the beginning of the book of John, one of the four accounts of Jesus' life on earth. It's a passage that's frequently overlooked to get to the stories of miracles and salvation. I don't know if I've ever had uh, a convicting explanation given to me on that. Anytime it is brought up, though, it's usually a short conversation. I think that the Word of God is the Gospel, and Jesus and His sacrifice was that message come to life. I guess I would say it also means the Word is truth, and the Word is a dictation of the truth of Christ and the truth of the Trinity. Suddenly, this poetic introduction becomes incredibly simple. When John says the Word, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Something, something, Trinity, and just like that, the verse is solved. For me, though, that's never been enough. Since I was a kid, something about this verse just felt off. The more I thought about it, the more questions I had. It was clear enough that the word here is Jesus, but why didn't John just say that? Also, isn't the word of God the Bible? Are we just supposed to imagine that there's a little bit of Jesus sprinkled into every print of the Bible? These may seem like I'm nitpicking or that I'm being downright silly, but these are genuine questions I've had for years. And as I've got older, the questions got more pressing. Words are made up constantly and change all the time, so what does that mean for Jesus? If he's the word of God, was his story also made up and changed too? What does modern rhetorical thought imply? If words create our perception of reality or are mere tools to control impressionable minds, what does that say about this word? Is Jesus' message just supposed to be a happy lie to make us feel better? The spiral only continues down towards the most fundamental questions we can ask about this verse and this story as a whole. Is God's word actually worth believing in? I 
I needed to find out why John actually was calling Jesus the Word and what the implications were for the rest of the biblical story. Thankfully, I knew just the person who could help answer both my theological and rhetorical concerns. I've always been interested in language. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a language guy. I tell people I'm, I'm in the English department, but for a lot of people that means literature, right? And I, I don't have a background in literature. I do the writing and then everyone thinks I, I'm doing creative writing. Um, no, I'm actually interested in, in, in how language works and I, I have been for a long time. This is Dr. Sean Barnett. He's a professor at Lander University. In the English department here, English and Foreign Languages, and I'm the assistant director of the Honors College, which is my um, probably where I spend most of my, my intellectual time, I guess. He was a mentor of mine throughout college, helping me grow both intellectually and spiritually in many important ways. So I knew if anyone could help me find the answer I was looking for, it'd be him. Before that, though, I wanted a better understanding of his own journey of growth. How did he end up a Christian and a rhetorician? Um, I, I went to undergrad to be a band director, of all things, um, but there was always this background um, interest in language. My high school English teacher pulled me aside before I went off to college and he said, Sean, are you sure about this? Um, and and of, of course I said, yes, I'm absolutely sure. And now in all these years later, he's, he's absolutely right. So I, um, after I decided I didn't want to do the band director thing, I got my, my graduate degrees in language. My master's is in linguistics and my, my PhD is in rhetoric and writing. Mm. Why, why those specific things? Like what draw you specifically to rhetoric? It was, it was Providence. Um, during my master's degree, I was, I was working on linguistics and I was thrown into the English 101 classroom. They said, go teach this English 101 class because at, at USC, South Carolina, where I was doing my master's, the linguistics program is in the English department as it is in a lot of places. And so we graduate students were the, the TAs for the English 101 classes. Um, I had, I had never taken English 101. I hadn't been in, in, in an English classroom for years. So I was terrified, but I quickly just fell in love with it. Um, it was, it was, an amazing experience. I had a fantastic mentor there. And I quickly realized that this was my this was my professional vocation. Um, and so while I, I didn't do a lot with linguistics as a technical science, it got me into the, the, the writing classroom. And then I found the program at, at the University of Tennessee that combined linguistics and rhetoric and writing teaching. And so that was kind of a, a, a really nice fit. Yeah, just all three just perfectly melted together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I actually had a professor who was looking at my application when I applied. She called me and said, you know, we're not the strongest place you could go for linguistics. And I um, I was driving at the time and I pulled off and I thought it was a really important, you know, grad school admission question. So, so I'm sitting there on the side of the road explaining, no, I really want to be a writing teacher. And I think the, the focus here on language is really important. So that was that was it. Yeah. And so now you you're several years you you've been here for several years at Lander University. Um what 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 can a student expect when they are actually like taking a class from you in in rhetoric or English 101? If if things are working, it would be what you said earlier, the breaking of the brain. Um I mean I I, I say that flippantly. I think that a lot of students come into our classrooms with an expectation for how school is supposed to run. And that's mostly in terms of administration. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to jump through these hoops. I'm going to get the credit. I'm going to move on. I am profoundly bored by that. 
I actually find that quite offensive. Um, and so what I want to try to do is to create a classroom where we can, me, the instructor and, and students together can look at this stuff and just be in awe of how language works and, and whatever the specific topic of the class is, whether it's my class on lying or inventing languages or grammar or whatever it is. Um, we're kind of always studying language. So you, you mentioned the brain breaking thing. One of my favorite classes that I think has been like the, the paradigm for the sort of class I want to teach was this honors class that we had a few, a uh, couple of semesters ago on the relationship between language and reality and whether language is supposed to represent reality or report reality, uh, which is kind of the common sense way that I think a lot of people think about it, or whether language is supposed to create reality. Um, and what that may mean. And I, th I think we'll probably get to that a little later in the conversation. Yeah, it was it was that class that really made me think of you when when this conversation originally got brought up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so moving into the more like uh, religious theological side of things, you're you're also a Christian. Yes, yes. Um, for, well, gosh, I, more than 20 years now, just barely more than 20 years. I was not I, I was raised in a, a church environment um, that I didn't much care about. Um, my parents will be horrified if they if they ever listen to this. Um, I I kind of grew up precocious and and I felt like I was too smart for that. Right? I look around and my my prejudiced idea was that well the Christians are all the bigots and the close minded people and and the people who just want to um, you know hold us back. I was very much, very much gr growing up in that that progress narrative that's all around us. Um, during my undergrad, I took an elective. I don't think this actually counted for anything towards my degree. Um, I was just interested. I, I, to a degree, I was religion shopping. Um, but I took a class with uh, Dr. James Cutsinger, who who reposed um, uh, about two years ago, and um, a year and a half ago, I think. And he. Um, he was a survey of world religions class. And so we talked about what religion is and what it looks like in, in different parts of the world. Um, and he was probably one of the most intelligent people I have ever met and, and, and ever will, will meet. Uh, just a fantastic scholar, a uh, very nice man. I, w I didn't know him well, but I was sitting in this class of, of uh, 100, maybe 150 students just listening to his lectures. And I, I was very much aware, wow, this guy's a lot smarter than me. And he is, he's a Christian. Um, and so I started to take it a little bit more seriously. Um, and in my, what I call religion shopping, I, I, I kind of figured out, okay, well, maybe there's something to this, this Christianity. Um, and then I was received into the church um, a couple years later. Listening to his story, I found it very curious that both of these passions, his faith and rhetorical studies, developed at the same time. For many, rhetoric is seen or intentionally used to antagonize core ideas of Christianity. Didn't rhetorical thought oppose ideas of an absolute truth or a, a one truest God? Yeah, and, and, and no denying, a lot of the rhetorical tradition is very much as, as you described it. Um, a lot of the early Christian writers were, were very opposed to rhetoric. Um, Augustine, uh, fourth century, fourth, fifth century bishop, he started out life as a rhetoric professor. And then as he got deeper into philosophy and eventually embraced Christianity, he, in his confessions, he looks back and, and he just really, really um, regrets his time doing what he 
considered selling lies, right? Because of rhetoric, you know, you can um, you can find a guilty person and, and and get them off in court. You can um, find an innocent person and condemn them. You can you can bend the truth to your will in rhetoric. This is one narrative of rhetoric, right? Um, and so. The idea that that rhetoric is just language and just persuasion and therefore manipulation, well, that is on one reading very much opposed to any idea of of, of truth or transcendence or God. Um, I I don't think that's the final answer, but I think that's. I, I would a, imagine not. Um, but but I I absolutely recognize that that is a uh, a component of the rhetorical tradition, and there are many rhetors, both classical and and contemporary, who would be as you described. I, I'm really am interested to hear more about your personal thoughts about how um, your your faith and rhetoric can coexist and how they can maybe even complement each other. But I feel like doing that just isolated from the main topic is doing a disservice to both. Um, so I would love to um, get started by just kind of exploring this idea of what the word of God means. Does that sound good? Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. The, the main verse that uh, we're, we're talking about today is John 1, 1. It's a verse that I feel like is uh, extremely well known because of how easy it is to memorize in you know reference to other verses. Right. Um, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Um, and this is, this is part of a larger poem that John is doing to introduce his gospel narrative of who Jesus of Nazareth truly was. Um, and there's, there's plenty of different, uh, fantastic resources that we'll have in the, um, show notes below about, um, dissecting this passage as a whole. But the main thing that really stands out to me and has always stood out to me is, how seemingly random um, it is for John to use this idea of the word of God. What is the purpose of this image? Why is it important that he is the word of God? I, I think some of the strangeness of that comes from our assumptions about what the phrase word of God means, might mean, or does mean in our culture. Um, I mean, you're, you're not leading towards this, but I, but there is this this background idea that we've talked about before. Um, someone in modern American culture says "word of God," and one of the things that might refer to is the Bible itself, right? Right. Um, and clearly, that's not what John has in mind here. Mm. Um, whatever, whatever you know, let, go back to Genesis and we don't find Adam picking up a Bible, right? That's, that's not, the, the, the Bible was not in the beginning in that sense. So, so it, part of the strangeness I think might come from that, although that's, that's a pretty quick thing to get over. At the same time, I wonder... Real, real yeah, quickly it, though, yeah, yeah, yeah. because I, I feel like for some people hearing that the word of God isn't the Bible uh, kind of, kind of raises some red flags. So I think like, I think that's a great place to start of just like, um, the relationship of that phrase and um, understanding what is being meant by that phrase. Mm -hmm. So like um, what, what, what I'm hearing you say is that that phrase isn't to say that the, the, the Bible isn't like divinely inspired and, and has that inherent truth that's behind it. Mm -hmm. It's more so um, that when, when, 
John is using this in his mind. He's not saying that Jesus is Bible. Exactly. Exactly. The, the Bible is a collection of uh, 66 manuscripts that we have from Jewish history and from the history of the early believers uh, in the first century. And these 66, ma- or, or um, yeah, I, I come from a Protestant tradition, right, you're Orthodox. Right. Yeah. How, many, how many books are in the Orthodox? More. More. <laughs> Well, okay. I, it, yeah. that, that's actually a more complex question. Okay. Um, there, there, there's a handful of what are sometimes called the deuterocanonical books, but actually that varies by jurisdiction. So. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we'll just say there's there's the set of manuscripts. And depending on your tradition, there may be more, there may be less. But the, the, constant, um, the, the constant claim behind all of these manuscripts is that these are somehow written by humans, but inspired by God. Right. And um, through these manuscripts, um, we get to hear uh, the wisdom of God, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that I, I think uh, that that's kind of where that phrase came, comes from. But I think that's a little bit different than what John is trying to say by saying that Jesus is the word of God. Exactly, exactly. There's no there's no error, of course, in, in calling the Bible the word of God, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's a perfectly reasonable and, and, and noble way of describing that. But when the Bible uses the phrase word of God, it's not referring to itself. Mm-hmm. We have to ask, what is the Bible trying to say exactly. when it uses this phrase? Right, right. So sorry to interrupt that, but I just wanted to kind of like sit on that a little bit because when, when you first said that to me, um, in a pre- preliminary conversation, it kind of like made me tense up a little bit. That's 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 reasonable. Yeah. And, and for me, coming from my background, where that word of God phrase was not something that I personally was always, you know, this is this is a synonymous with the Bible, that dissonance never really caused a problem for me. Um, and and, and to, to, to emphasize, I'm not saying that the Bible is not the word of God. I'm just saying that the phrase itself means something different when it's actually in the text exactly okay exactly. Yeah. yeah and that that's a that's a segue to to um i think an important point is that for us hearing or reading john calling jesus the word of god mm. it's it's a little weird but i don't think he meant i he didn't mean for that to be weird mm-hmm. right because he's drawing on a usage that is absolutely consistent with previous scripture. Yeah. Right? We have all through through the Old Testament references to the word of God. The word of God came to Samuel. The word of God came to Jeremiah. Mm. And we might read that in terms you know, through our lens of of, you know, a, a book, a, a printed text and focus just on the message behind the text. But I don't I don't think that that's the way the Bible reads it. The Bible sees the word of God in those Old Testament passages as as a person, as a manifestation of God. Okay. So I, I think that 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 may seem weird at first to hear, but I, I feel like there is some some similarities to what I think you're saying. So I mean, for one, in Christian tradition, the idea of both God and yet distinct from God is something that is very easy for us to kind of relate to in this, in the sense of the Trinity, sure. you know, three persons, but they're all God. Right. It's not like, like portions of God, they're all fully God and yet distinct. Mm-hmm. And so what what you're saying, it sounds like is something similar to that. Yes. Uh, I wouldn't even say similar. I would say, I would say that the, if the, the whole Bible is about Christ, mm. then, then when the Old Testament uses phrases like the word of God, mm. um, unless there's some compelling reason to understand that as a, as a message, as a proposition, right? As we might think of the word, 
um, then we have to assume that the the text means what it says, and that's the the word of God, as John eventually makes explicit. Mm, okay, so what what you're getting at is the idea of um, that that idea of comparing it to the Trinity isn't just this this helpful analogy that that's what what John is doing here is saying, hey, every time that you see the word of God show up, um, you're seeing a incarnation of Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and I mean from from reading the rest of John's gospel, I feel like that that's actually makes a lot of sense because, you know, Jesus or er, John goes on to say that the word was with God and the word was God. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and we're getting right up to the border of any of things I know anything about. So I don't want to speak <laughs> beyond beyond what I'm I'm sure about. But my, my understanding is that in doing that, John was not necessarily creating something new. Mm. Right? He's, he's drawing on common understandings of God in Second Temple Jewish literature. Yeah. So, so he's, not, he's not inventing that. He's just giving voice to this particular idea that's already there. Yeah. And I think you can also see uh, parallels to that with the way that, the way that John – um, depicts these early moments of Jesus's ministry and like first revelation of coming out into the world um, is actually really, really similar to Genesis one. I mean, he, he starts out with in the beginning for a very specific reason. Right. Absolutely. To, this is intentional. Yeah. Right. It's just in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's how the very first book of his Jewish Bible would be. Um and, uh, you know, you, you have this narrative of God speaking creation into life. When you compare that of the spirits hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. Right, you right. You know, later on, John talks about Jesus' baptism, where the Holy Spirit comes above the waters. Exactly. You have the Spirit creating this life out of nothingness, and you have Jesus going from the waters into the desert to start his ministry. You know, I, I think that th those parallels between um, that creative force that we see at the beginning, like all that to say, I, I, I think that that idea that John isn't making things up here, he's just connecting dots that already, th that, that are already there. Exactly, exactly. I mean, he you write to your audience in language that they're going to understand. So he's not starting this this list of ideas out of nowhere. He's he's telling a story that his audience is going to recognize in in language that's going to be familiar. Um, he's just saying, hey, this word of God, oh yeah, this is Jesus Christ. We have we have met this word. It's starting to become a lot clearer as to what's going on here. John isn't making things up or using church phrases willy-nilly. Instead, he's intentionally using language that would remind us of stories from the Old Testament. We see God use his words to speak life into all of creation in Genesis 1. It's a trend consistent throughout the Old Testament. When God wants to create something or do something, he always does it through his word. John wants us to be thinking about all of that when we hear him talk about Jesus as the Word, that Jesus is that creative force in human form. And just as life was created through the Word in the beginning, a new life is now being made through Jesus. 
though we get the reference John is making now, it's important to make sure we understand what John actually means. Remember, the Gospel of John was written in Greek, not English. And while we have plenty of translations of the Bible, sometimes words can have different nuances between languages. So what word did John use here? Are there any implications we might miss? Well, I, I think it would be important to talk a little bit about um, the, the the term he uses, the logos, right? Um, because we translate that into English as the word, and that's that's an accurate translation. But the the idea of logos has other resonances beyond just what the English word word implies. Mm. What what are those? So um, basically, reasonableness, logic, order. Um, I, it, I'll back up a little bit. If if someone has has learned a little bit of rhetoric in a writing class, probably um, in an AP English or, or or freshman English or something like that, the way logos gets presented is part of a set of 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 persuasive strategies, right? You can use ethos, which is who you are as a speaker, or you can use pathos. You can appeal to your your uh, audience's emotions or experiences, and you you can use logos, which often gets translated or or or. Um, boiled down to facts and figures mm. or reasoning. I think that's a distortion. I think that's a, an oversimplification. And so if, if, a, if, if someone's experience of the word logos is, you know, writing class, rhetoric class, <clears throat> excuse me, then I think they may have some associations with the word logos that, that don't really make sense. They get us back into this weird territory, mm. right? What does it mean for Jesus to be the facts and figures of God. Yeah, right? and that, that's, doesn't, that, that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. So what do you think are the implications or the uh, ideas that John is really wanting us to, to think about when he says Jesus was the logos of God? I think the, the, a better understanding of, of, of logos or logos in a rhetorical perspective kind of draws out some of the, those ideas there. And that is that, that it, it's about reasonability or a string of reasoning. It's about order, um, something that makes sense, right? Rhetoric, persuasion is, is about getting your, your audience to understand something, to accept something by showing them that it's connected to stuff that they already accept. Okay. So w in that sense, rhetoric isn't about just creating nothing. It's not about creating your own little world and manipulating things to be what you like. Depending on who you talk to, and <laughs> okay, I mean, I, mean okay, okay. I, I, I don't, I don't think no one would say that. But there are constraints on rhetoric, right? Okay. In or, if if rhetoric is going to be effective, if persuasion is going to happen, then I have to build on what my audience already knows, mm. right? And I have to show that what I want them to accept is in accord with, in harmony with what they already believe, and that's that's how how logos works, okay. right? You start from principles that the audience. Um, accepts or recognizes is true, and then you you show that what you want them to accept, what you're trying to get them to believe, is in harmony with that or follows logically from that. So that ties into what John is doing, what we what we talked about John is doing in the first place, mm -hmm. where he's taking these ideas from the Old Testament. He's not making a new theology. His goal in this gospel, in this book that he's writing, is to show how the story of Jesus of Nazareth is the natural conclusion that someone would get from the Old Testament. 
I think that's reasonable. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would go a step further with this idea of, of, of order and that if, if the beginning of John's gospel is a, a creation narrative, right? Where God is, uh, God is, God is word. And we go back to Genesis and God is speaking creation into existence. Um, well, if God is creating through speech and speech is logos, then what that means is that creation is about putting things into an order. And I, I know we often think of creation as being, you know, there was nothing and now there is something. But I, I think it makes a little bit more sense to read the biblical idea of creation as, as an ordering or as a, a bringing order to chaos, mm. right? So when, when, when Christ is the word of God, the logos of God, what that means in a, in a creative sense is that Christ is the orderer of chaos. Yeah. It's kind of like... Um... With like old, not old TVs, but like analog TVs, where you would turn the TV on and there's white static. There's there's noise that's there, but the antenna is reading just absolute nonsense. It's just reading whatever it can, and that's where you get the white noise of both like the the snow on the the television and the white noise that's actually coming through the speakers. There's technically stuff there but it's meaningless and it's nothingness. It's yeah. only when someone creates a radio signal that it can be interpreted and it can be ordered into moving images and comprehensible sound. You're, you're creating a news, uh, like a television station, but really what you're doing is ordering uh, the chaos that was already there. Yeah, yeah. And this, I mean, and that's fundamental to what speech does. Okay. I think that that offers a really interesting segue. We want to make sure that we understand both facets, both what John is doing in the passage and the implications for for how we understand and use words. But before we kind of transition off of this, uh, I just want to make sure that I kind of can summarize what what we've talked about so far. Um, Where we're at is John has in mind all of the Hebrew Bible, all of the Old Testament. And he knows that his audience, his primarily Jewish audience that he's writing to, is going to be having that in their back of their mind as well. They grew up in, you know, the, the synagogue. They heard all of these things. And so all of these stories and this hope for a Messiah is, is dead center uh, of their brains. And what John is u- doing is the, the function of Logos. Uh, where he is presenting this information and showing how it is not only related to the the life of these Jewish people, but is actually the climax of all of their hopes and dreams that their their scriptures had been pointing to. And to really emphasize that, he presents his main character um, as this this new creation as this new ordering where it's Jesus Christ himself that is the order that is the the creative force that empowered all of the the stories of of God from the Hebrew Bible originally that the the Jewish messiah of Jesus is um, the climax to their scriptures. If there are any parts of that summary that makes you feel uncomfortable, don't worry. 
you're not alone. I, I in in that in that summary in that synthesis so far, I worry a little bit that it makes it sound like John is just using this as a as a rhetorical trick, mm. right? As a way of uh, seizing on a convenient coincidence in order to make a point. And I, I, I wouldn't want to read that into it. I, th- I think that that's not, he's not um, using this as a strategy. He, in fact, he, what, what he's doing is explaining that this is the case. Gotcha. It, it, it's one of those things where, you know, he, he's he's writing, he's adding that, that creative element. That's what makes it, you know, partly human. But, right. you know, the the implication is that this is also inspired word. Yeah. And the authority of that inspired word, the reason why anything that John is saying in the first place matters is because what he's writing about, the facts that he, he's presenting are in fact the ordering that holds the entire universe together. Yeah, and, and you see how we're back to that original tension, right, between is, is, is rhetoric reporting reality yeah. or is it a creation of reality? Mm. So, I mean, let's get into that. First, let's take a moment to steep in what we've covered. Take a moment to pause if need be, write some notes, or just give yourself a few quiet moments to process. We'll be right back when you're ready. Now that we have a better understanding of how John interprets the Old Testament and what he means in his gospel, it's time that we apply it to our modern worldview and the conflicts that boil up. We were left asking whether rhetoric creates a problem with the Bible. The questions rhetoric raises is really important. Do our words give a report of the reality that already exists, like how we tend to think of them? or? Do they actually create our reality, like we see God do with his words? If our words do create reality though, is there any real truth? How does that affect how seriously we take what the Bible has to say? To begin answering any of those questions, we need to work our way up for the most foundational ones. Right, right. You know, so summarize quickly what's the point of words no. <laughs> <laughs> what is the purpose of words they are to word oh, when okay. you word wordly you Can you create with words? Let's start there. Yeah, if, yeah, yeah, if, absolutely, absolutely. If, if the biblical idea of creation is ordering, and that's yeah. the purpose of words, like, what are the implications of that? So, so let's say we're we're sitting in this room, and and three animals walk in, right? And we don't, we don't know what they are. Maybe we don't have words for them yet, um, or, or we're not quite sure. But, you know, two of them are fairly small, and they've all got four legs, and they're furry. And two of them are small, and one of them is big. Now, let's say we look at the one of the small ones, and we say, we're going to call that one cat. And then we look at the other small one, and the big one, and we're going to call those dog. Okay. 
So, so what we've done is create two categories, cat and dog, right? Um, and, and we, we know because this is a thought experiment. Let's step outside thought experiment for a second. We know that some dogs are big and some dogs are small, yeah. right? You can, you can have a, a Dotson and a, a Great Dane and they're both dogs. And we know that some dogs might be small like cats. They might be the same, same size as cats. So, what we're doing in the moment when we create, let's step back into the thought experiment. Well, in the moment when we create those words and we say, all right, this one we're going to call cat and these two we're going to call dogs. What we're doing is we are responding to individual stimuli, individual things, three animals, mm. three essences, three creatures, whatever. Um, and we are deciding we are declaring that these two over here have certain characteristics in common that make them the same and that they have things in common with each other that make them different from this third thing over here, which we're calling cat. Okay. And when we do that, we're, we're, we're drawing attention to certain similarities, maybe their structure, maybe we know something about their diet, maybe the noise they make, um, and we're ignoring other features of the physical uh, existences before us, right? So we're ignoring their size, for example. Okay. But there is also that element of we have science to tell us what words means. You yeah. know, like, yeah. you know, we, we can look at things and say, oh, that's a cat, that's a dog, mm -hmm. but you can still be wrong. You know, you can look at the genetic makeup material of the cat or of the dog and say, you know, look, this is, this one is genetically a dog. This one is genetically a cat. You know, it, it, I, I, I feel like a lot of people would like push back on that, the rhetoric side and the freedom of, we get to decide what qualities matter. Right, right. You know, and we can just be like, no, science determines what qualities matter. That, that, that's fair. Um, and for, for, for a, a simple case like cat and dog, where those are really clearly entrenched ideas. And when most people are conversant enough with science to understand what those differences might mean at a, at a more biological genetic level, sure thing. But there are weird cases, right? Our taxonomies break down. Mm. Um, I, I get the, the, the example every kid loves to think about is a platypus, mm. right? Um, we have these other thought experiments um, that get on the internet and, and lose three hours debating whether a taco is a sandwich, right? right? Or a Pop-Tart is a, a, you know, a, a calzone, yeah. right? Um, so there are places where our categories do break down. Mm. And at that point, it becomes clear that our categories are... This is, this is one argument within rhetoric, are right. linguistic creations. Mm. And it's in that sense that rhetor rhetoricians will say language is, is creating reality. The impression I get is that the reason why people feel so strongly about those kinds of debates where like the categories break down mm -hmm. is because there's that need of, no, there is a right answer. Exactly. There is a category that this has to fit in that is objective. And the reason why I care so much whether or not a taco is a sandwich or not is the fact that there needs to be that objectivity. It kind of reads as though rhetoricians, to, to those people, it kind of reads that rhetoricians have like given up, you know, of yeah. just like, ah, it doesn't matter. Life is meaningless. Like, eat a taco sandwich if you want. You know, like, it, it can feel like when we start to get into these questions about uh, rhetoric, I think a lot of people 
kind of get this sense of it's intentionally trying to play God in that sense. I, that, that's a fair criticism. That's a fair, and, and certainly you can find um, rhetoricians who are who are going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one one avenue within that thought, one response to that, um, and this is not my thinking, but I think this is this is a reasonable response, um, is to say, well, if there is a reality, if there is something that's that's objectively true, like you like you mentioned. We're so trapped behind our ling- language and our, our categories and our customs that we're not going to get to it, mm. right? This is a, this is a classic um, thing from the, the, the thought of, of Gorgias, who was a, a early early uh, scholar of rhetoric, right? He, it, reality doesn't exist. Okay, okay, maybe it does, but we can't know about it. Okay, maybe we could know about it, but even even if we could know about it, we can't talk about it. Mm. Um, again, I don't. I don't follow that line of reasoning. I don't I don't subscribe to that. But I think that if we're going to say we are so hopelessly alienated from objective truth, we are so cut off from the source of truth, if any truth exists, then all we've got is language, then sure, you know, let's eat, drink and be merry and make up words, mm. right? Let's, <laughs> let's control our, our world the only way we have, the only way we can, and that is by making it ourselves through language. And again, this is one rhetoric idea. And yeah. I, I feel like this is the the rhetoric idea that most people associate with rhetoric yes. and which is why most people are nervous and hesitant towards rhetoric of like, oh, okay, these are just a bunch of people that want to do things their own way mm-hmm. and are going to use the excuse of, oh, there's there, there's no way we can truly know things, you know, and regardless of whether or not that line, if you follow that line of reasoning, you know, not just like following it in your life, but just understanding it at all. Exactly. exactly. Um, you know, there's that sense that, um, this is, this is, uh, it's dangerous. It's it. Yeah. Where it's just like, all right, there's, there's no, there's no right and wrong. Um, you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And if you can justify it to the crowd, you know, right. Uh, might makes right. It, that's exactly it. That's the, it, there, there's a, a very strong component of nihilism. Well, not a component. It is nihilistic, mm. right? Because there is nothing. Right. And and all we have is language, and therefore, like you said, might makes right. If I can convince you that something is true, then then it is true for all intents and purposes. Hmm. Um, and and as a fallen person, I do want to do things my own way, hmm. and I do want to tell everyone what to do. Right? I, I I don't want to to submit to anyone else, much less anything that might be a reality with a capital R or my own limits. Yeah. Um, and so there's a there's a there's a yearning for power and freedom there, and power and freedom are not bad things, but but unchecked, right? Unchecked by any sense of reality or or submission, they lead to very bad places. So that is one idea of what do words do? Yeah. When we create with words, um, it can lead us to... Cr- to this perspective of nothing exists outside of our language. Right. If if creation is words, then whatever we say is whatever we get to believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I I you know, coming out of the conversation we were just having, um that would make me a little nervous. If that if that's where the conversation ends, then what does that say about the Bible's perspective of creation is that ordering and that words, right, you know, if right. it is 
is God just doing whatever he wants and like just, you know, gaslighting us to believe that he has our best interest in mind? What does that say about Jesus's character? Yeah, yeah. You know, and like, so I, I think that's the, like the, the really like kind of, kind of concerning at first when, when we get to this point, it start th this verse goes from like, oh, okay, that's, that's cool imagery, I guess, to this seems genuinely dangerous. Yes. I, there are things that I think are undeniably true about this particular rhetorical understanding of language. Mm -hmm. Many of the things we interact with are, in fact, creations of language. We are, we're recording this at Lander University right now, right? But Lander University doesn't have any physical existence. In any scientific sense, it doesn't exist. Mm. Right. Um, there's there, there's carpet and there's walls and there's oxygen and there's land and there's students and faculty. But none of those things by itself is Lander University. If all humans went away, then I, I'm sorry, the rocks and stones themselves would not sing mm. Lander University. Right. Right. Um, so so there are a lot of of aspects of our life. And I would even say probably a lot of the most um, uh, salient aspects of our life that are linguistic creations in this sense mm. uh you know money's not real mm. right um that's a relief yeah exactly <laughs> exactly it's the, the birds made it up um <laughs> so so i think i don't want to deny that the the obvious truth of this rhetorical insight up to a point mm. because there is uh, an overreaction that we could jump to right and that would be to say no Words mean exactly what they meant in the King James Bible. And when Jesus spoke English, these, these are the words he spoke, <laughs> right? You know, to deny the fact that language changes, to deny the fact that language is flexible and creative and all those things. Um, I know, obviously, that, that's a caricature, but I do think there's a temptation to push back and say, no, these things really are real. There's a lot of, there's a lot of questions that get brought up with here. Yeah. And I think this is an important point to realize that like, okay, this is, this is the heart of this discussion, but this discussion has to be more than just this podcast episode, you know, it, like we're, hopefully we'll be able to answer, uh, or at least address some aspects in the, in the time that we have left. Um, but the purpose of this is to carry on conversations and and do so in an informed and in a safe way yeah. where you know we have we have these extremes that you were just kind of dissecting of nihilism versus like um linguistic authoritarianism i guess right yeah. exactly um and the 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 response is to take the chaos that all of this brings and then to find an order that is both um, wisdom that's going to allow us to actually grow in our understanding of the text and ourselves yeah. and do it in a way that actually finds um, respect for what John was actually trying to say. You know, the both concerns of um, we don't want to pretend like words have uh inherent meaning outside of our own categories and the concern of we don't want to miss the absolute truth that is here 
both of those concerns are genuine concerns. The, the, the danger is if we forget either one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's a, there's an article that I really like that, that where the, the writer points out that this tension between these two views of language, right? Language is reporting reality and is therefore, um, in some sense, objective versus the, the rhetorical idea that language is, is, is arbitrary and therefore creative. That tension is, is, I don't think it's overstating it to say that's underlying all of Western philosophy. Um, I mean, maybe I am overstating it, but that's kind of what rhetoric does. It eats all the other disciplines. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's tremendously important, and it's certainly not going to get answered in, in a single conversation. We've been chewing on this, in, at least in writing, for 2,500 years, and who knows how long before that. I started saying I don't want to overreact, right? Um, at the same time, uh, I am a Christian, and that's because I, well, it's for many reasons, um, some of which I probably, I, I will never even understand myself, but part of that is that I recognize that there is an underlying order, right? Um, so so the tension for me is how do I hold this this I don't want to say belief because that makes it sound like it's a, a subjective choice, you know, believe or not. Um, this this recognition uh, of an underlying order. How do I hold that intention with the the recognition that language is such a creative force in our lives? It, it, it's like. God is creating this word with the word uh, of God. And then he says, okay, now you have it. Adam, like, look at all of these animals. You know, I have the authority to create them and take them from dirt in the ground into living, breathing creatures. You know, here's three animals that walked in. What are you going to name them? Well, name that one a dog, that one a cat, that one a, you know. Right, and we're we're therefore co-creators, and whoa, that's a responsibility. Yeah, and I I feel like, I don't know, just, just recognizing the fact that the Bible from page one recognizes this tension of words have, words somehow have this inherent power that, that connects in a fundamental way to ultimate reality. Right. However, there is this freedom of choice of how that ultimate reality is manifested. And I think that a really important distinction in how it's presented in that, in that opening narrative of God with Adam is the fact that he, Adam is Adam is doing that creation in a uh, delegated way. You know, he he is given the responsibility not of creating the animals himself, but of naming them. Right. There's these elements where he's recognizing this ultimate reality and also expressing this creative power that God has given him. And, and that Adam is thus in right relation both with his creator and with the rest of creation, hmm. right? We talked about Lagos being order, yeah. right? And, and that's, that's, that's order. That's the, the creation working the way it's supposed to work. So would you say that um, like the image of God and God's command to, to 
like subdue the land. Do you think that those ideas are connected to this idea of language and creation in that ordering way? It makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. Yeah. Where, where, where do you see those connections? Like, cause, cause to me, that's, that's the purpose that got like Genesis one is very, very clear of what is our purpose here on earth. We're supposed to relate with God. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're supposed to, um, like be God's representatives here on earth of, of whatever God is, we need to be like God and then be like God here on earth with our lives. And that's, that's our salvation, hmm. right? Uh, I'm, I'm the salvation, I'm, I'm, I'm talking in language post fall, hmm. but, but that's our salvation is to take our place in the order that God has established for us in, and part of our responsibility there is to continue to put things in order, to, to bless them, hmm. and to bless them by, by speaking order into the world. So you you mentioned um, this third way. Is this kind of is this the third way of understanding it? Well, it would be if I weren't a sinner, right? Or or, or uh, yes, but I'm not there, right? So so what I think of this uh, of the third way is it has to be humility. Hmm. For me, that's that's the key. Because I'm, I'm smart enough to recognize that most of my day is dominated by language. And I'm, uh, sometimes I'm smart enough to recognize that I'm not God. Right? And so, so the only way to reconcile that is to say, there are limits to how close I can get to the ultimate reality through my language. My language is not going to be completely in harmony with God. I want to do the best I can, but I'm not going to delude myself in thinking that I'm going to get it right. And that's the wisdom I want to take from the rhetorical perspective. Yeah. I'm not going to get it right, but I want to hold, hold to the, the attempt to get it right, to get as close as I can. So for, for me, the way that my mind is currently like interpreting what you're saying um, and, and just kind of like with, with all of this, this conversation in in my mind we have we have us as humans that are created to um to both be in harmony with god and the rest of his creation mm-hmm. and and harmony is probably a better word than order i've, I've said order a few times but i think that has that has connotations that that may be unhelpful mm. i don't know um harmony yeah yeah, yeah. And God, he, he has this, he, he creates by ordering things into existence, um, and taking this chaos and creating this, this order around it. And he has given us this delegation of, um, recognizing him as the ultimate authority of that ultimate truth Mm -hmm. while also, giving us the opportunity to speak into that creation as well and, and collaborate in that sense. Um, and ideally we would be able to do that where we're able to use our words and we're interpreting the world around us in a, in a new and unique way that is only possible through language. Right. And that is in accord with 
God. Exactly. And the difficulty is um, what happens with the fall, where we have the desire not just to work with God, but to be God, to use our words not to, um, to, to create categories for God's exi- for, for for God's creation, but to use our words to um, replace God's creation. Yeah, rather than creating harmony. Right, creating beautiful music by 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 putting things into relationship with each other, um, rather than putting things into relation, we are skewing. Right, we're skewing the creation that God has has ordered, and thereby creating chaos. Yeah, it's almost as if like if you have a symphony, you have all these people that are playing different instruments together. If they're playing in harmony, all of those facets come together in this beautiful, wonderful way. But if everyone is just ignoring the conductor and playing whatever music they want, all of the ordering that they are doing when it's compounded with the rest of the the concert is just creating this unbearable chaos. Yes, yeah, th- that's it. I mean, the 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 individual musician may be creating order in a certain way, yeah, and that order could be something that is genuinely beautiful mm-hmm. and the- internally consistent within its own limits. Yes. Uh, you know, logical, I guess. Yeah. The difficulty is that everyone else is doing the same thing and creating a chaos that is somehow worse than when there wasn't any creation going on at all. What's the phrase that keeps getting used in judges? Everyone do- did what is right in his own eyes. Exactly. Yeah, well, and that. you know that's something that started at the very beginning again with Genesis. Mm-hmm. You know, throughout all of Genesis or Genesis one, God is looking at his creation and he sees that it's good, mm-hmm. and God sees that it's not good for man to be alone, and then. You know, once all of that creation is built, he sees it as very good. The first time that a human sees something as good is Eve looking at the fruit and deciding with her own eyes that it's good for eating. Mm -hmm. She takes it and she tries to become the conductor rather than allowing herself to be a part of a symphony. And of course, prior to that, there is there is a there's a lie. Right. There's or or there is there is rhetoric. There's deceptive speech that Mm. she that she that is imposed onto her onto her. Okay, interesting. I've never thought about the snake's rhetoric as a foil to the rhetoric that God used to create the world. Yeah. Do you like how do you think that's just like a a coy coincidence for this conversation? Or do you think that's really, really intentional that the fall happens because of that? rhetoric well that correct me if i'm wrong that's the first speech we see in the bible that isn't in accord with god's order Mm. yeah and it's i mean and and right away it has it has consequences it's also really interesting the fact that it's presented as this animal Mm -hmm. um which historically has not spoken uh most animals don't but it's just really interesting that this thing that you know the the jewish authors that you know composed the these documents they weren't dumb they didn't think like oh i, I have never seen a snake maybe they like have really cool, interesting ideas yeah, like yeah. they there there's this level of there's something more going on here and you know later traditions and and you know the books later on connect this this um this snake to like the the accuser the satan right right um but in this narrative, it's just a snake 
in this disordered way of, you know, it's almost as if the snake is using words, trying to be God himself. Yeah, yeah. It's almost as if he were a liar and the father of lies. What a coincidence. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just, just to go yeah. back to the idea, the, 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 the whole narrative is, is working together. Yeah. All right. Let's break down some key points. At first glance, rhetoric and the Bible don't seem like they'd mix well. If words have no intrinsic meaning and we just use them to shape our reality to be whatever we'd like, then the idea of Jesus as the word seems to lose its authority as ultimate truth. But when we understand the role words play in the biblical story, we see that the reality-shaping nature of words is a but core theme I, I throughout. What we're saying here is words are inherently powerful and they are a power that we have been given access to and that is no accident they have creative power because they order things and a way that we can image god as the image of god is by creating order the question is whether or not we are willing to collaborate with god in order to create that harmony with each other, with the other instruments, and with God, with the conductor. And if we are willing to submit our words in that power, our words can actually bring us closer to that ultimate reality, rather than preventing us from, from getting there. Yeah. And when we look at what John is saying with Jesus is the word of God. He's basically saying, if you commit yourself to this rabbi, to the son of God, God incarnate, you are reconnecting with that creative force that's going to bring about new creation. By committing yourself to Jesus, you're committing yourself to the order of of, of beauty that God created in the first place, that God created in order to bless humanity. Yes. Yeah. And with that core concept cracked, so many more conversations begin. Of, this is probably for me the most persuasive argument against lying. I mean, I I know this is a hobby horse of mine. I'm sorry, um, yeah, yeah, but it, the sixth commandment, right? right? Exactly, it says exactly. Right there. But um, <laughs> but I'm, you know, you 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 read people, um, even even very saintly Christian writers on lying, um, and there's there's a number of reasons not to lie that are offered. I've always been unsatisfied by the the simple rule following one, right? Sort of this deontological approach, saying don't lie because God said not to. It's it's a lot deeper than that. Right. Um, this is this we we see we see Christ as the 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 logos, the word of God, and we see the power of speech, and we see um, we see this really really powerful tool or weapon that we have, um, and to misuse that has has very serious consequences. Yeah, and I think that like you know, based off of this conversation, if 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 we allow ourselves to meditate on all of these ideas um, of you know, the patterns that we see in the Old Testament of when deception is used and um, see the connections of uh, whether or not that person is trying to 
collaborate with God or do it their own way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very, very consistent. We see like the first one that immediately pops into mind is Abraham lying about um, Sarah being his his sister rather than his wife. Right, right. And that causes these massive like uh, societal like plagues that are happening and the, the Pharaoh, that Pharaoh being innocent, like not knowing why. And he realizes it's because, you know, there's this chaos that's happening that is caused by someone's deception because they are, they're creating an order that God did not will. In that example, it literally is about a relationship, right? Order, harmony is about relationships. Yeah. Um, and in that case, it's, it's, it's especially clear. Yeah. And I, I feel like you can take these, these ideas of um, words creating harmony or chaos and just like see it literally all throughout the scriptures. Yeah. You know, when, when God says the word of the Lord came to Moses or came to Noah, came to anyone in the scriptures, it's God asking them to collaborate on something to create something new and something beautiful, something that's going to, as he, you know, brings his word to Abraham, something that's going to bless all nations. And the question is, are you going to participate in singing with the word of God? Is there anything that you feel like we need to address before we go? I, I think we've hit the most important thing, and that is the this question of, of humility before the the power of language and the the potential of language to lead us astray right to to, to either to to um, to create beauty to to create order or to to lead to very bad things and um to sit with that tension i i, I think that's that's what we've covered i mean we didn't even talk about babel oh my <laughs> but gosh, yeah. um but that's for another yeah. day, that's for another day. i mean that, that for me that's another um uh, another reason to approach language in humility, yeah. recognizing that I am going to do my best to to bring harmony to the world by using my language um, truly, yeah. right? But at the same time, I'm using a weapon that's been you know unloaded, yeah. or or uh, it's been in some way weakened, mm-hmm. right? That with a that, because it's a it's a fallen language mm-hmm. post Babel, yeah. and I I have to believe that's that's for our protection. Along with scripture, there's plenty of other helpful resources to build your rhetoric knowledge as well. Well, if you want to do a deep dive into the the Word of God with folks who are a lot smarter than I am, um, the the Lord of Spirits podcast, which is on Ancient Faith Radio, has has an episode um, on the Word of the Word of the Lord. Um, it's, and that's, uh, there's, there's, there's linguistic stuff in there. There's language stuff in there too. Um, but it's also Christology. So that's, that's a place if you're, you're interested specifically in that, that I would start. Dr. Barnett also mentioned an article earlier about the different perspectives in rhetorical thought. It's called Stanley Fish in the Old Quarrel Between Rhetoric and Philosophy by David Ruchnik. You can find that in the show notes below, along with many other references and resources to continue this conversation. 
As you continue studying on your own, Barnett had some helpful reflection questions to help us parse and apply what we've explored today. I think I think two things that come to mind, uh, and, and neither of these is really uh, 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 more than what we've already said. I think the, the first one is just to pay attention to how, how am I using language? Um, where am I saying things that are are empty? Maybe I'm not lying, but maybe I'm speaking in a way that is... Um, advancing my own vainglory. In terms of looking at the rest of the Bible, I would I would go back to that phrase word of God. Because when I think when we when we read word of God um, in the Old Testament and we understand that this is this is Christ, that that changes how we read things, I think. Um, and then this idea of of chaos versus order. Thank you so much, Dr. Barnett, for coming on the show and talking with me. And thank you for listening to That Won't Preach. I hope that this podcast will be able to help encourage you as you continue to grow your faith or just simply ask questions about the Bible. I've been working on this podcast for well over a year now, developing it, recording, and getting it ready for launch. So if you wouldn't mind rating this podcast and putting a review down in your podcast player, that would mean the world. And if there are any passages that are troubling you that you'd like to see me cover, please let me know. You can find me on pretty much any social media at that won't preach all one word or you can send me a message on my website. Go to bit.ly slash that won't preach. Again, that's bit.ly slash that won't preach. 